what the heck is an accountant talking to us about student health and wellness for? They, they have the things available that they need, but they're not understanding why they should approach it. Um, and we need partnerships. And we need partnerships with teeth. Sort of feel like we're part of a collective community that is uh, really fosters well-being and health. Good afternoon, good evening, and good morning. My name is Judith Sachs. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to invite you to, to this gathering today. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge that I am hosting this online conversation from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and celebrate the diversity of Indigenous people and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of New South Wales and elsewhere in Australia. I also recognise that our panellists and many attendees here on this call are joining from across Turtle Island on the unceded and traditional territory of many nations in what we know as Canada. We acknowledge and pay respects to past and current custodians of this land. So I am the um, Chief Academic Officer of Studiosity, a role that I've had for a couple of years now. Before that role, I was a full-time academic and uh, Provost and Senior Deputy Vice-Chancellor at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. I've held other senior roles in Australian universities and um, I'm pleased that uh, I can look at universities from the outside now rather than having to manage the multiple challenges and travails of academic and student life. So what I'd like to do, I'd like to invite the members of the panel to introduce themselves and to indicate the expertise to which they bring to this uh, panel today. And if I may invite Joshua Xavier, who is our student representative on the panel. Joshua, could you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, thanks, Judith. So uh, I'm Josh, and I'm currently completing my master's in digital management at the Ivy School of Business in London, Ontario, Canada. Uh, and before that, I completed my undergraduate degree in marketing at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, during my time there, I was involved with you know, a ton of extracurriculars. I went on exchange to Tilburg University in the Netherlands for about six months. And I also did a year-long internship through my courses as well. Uh, so pretty much at this point, a professional student, uh, to say the least. And I'm happy to be here. Thanks very much. Just going on the panels beside me. Um, Verity, could I ask you to introduce yourself, please? Thank you so much. So my name is Verity Turpin, and I am uh, Vice Provost Student Affairs at Dalhousie University. I am located in Halifax, uh, in Nova Scotia, and, um, and I am uh, here on the land of Mi'kma'ki in Dalhousie, which is the university, obviously, that I work with. We are located in the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq. We are all treaty people. Land acknowledgements are only a small part of the cultivating strong relationships with First Peoples. Acknowledging territory and First Peoples should take place within the larger context of genuine and ongoing work to forge real understanding and to challenge the legacies of colonialism. I would also like to acknowledge the histories, contributions, and legacies of the African Nova Scotian people and the communities who have been here in Nova Scotia for over 400 years. My pronouns are she and her. And so I have been working in student affairs for over 20 years. I'm sure everyone's looking at my CPA behind my name and thinking, what the heck is an accountant talking to us about student health and wellness for? And so, 
the last 10 years of my career has really been uh, focused on supporting students and particularly in the areas of looking at health and wellness systems uh, and uh, clinics, service delivery, and that larger concept of student wellness and looking at the social determinants of health, how can we align our university policies and resources and decision-making around that larger context of student health and well-being. Thank you. Thank you, Vicky. Andrea. Thank you. I'm really privileged and thrilled to join uh, this wonderful panel today. Uh, to talk about student well-being, uh, a topic near and dear to my heart. I do acknowledge the land I'm in, in Toronto, which is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is also home to the many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. So I'm a psychiatrist by training and I work in the hospital sector. I was uh, very invested in the area of early intervention for a long time for young people presenting with new onset symptoms of psychosis and bipolar disorder. And over the last eight years, I've been engaged in work in student mental health at the University of Toronto, where I'm the director of psychiatric care for our largest campus, one of three campuses, where we support about 66,000 students on the St. George campus. And currently I'm, in, I'm involved in a very um, fascinating uh, overhaul of our um, mental health on campus. Uh, it's, a, it's a student mental health redesign project and I'm the clinical lead for it. And I've been doing the work for the past six months and it's being extended into the new year. And this has a pres presidential and provostial mandate to really look at overhauling services, to provide really timely and easy same day access for students to have co-design. And I'm thrilled that we have a student on our panel today. It's great to have you here, Joshua, in, in all we do to really uh, look at the umbrella of student staff and faculty wellness in terms of an entire healthy campus, to focus on some redesigning of our spaces to really uh, give the credibility and the respect um, that the wellness spaces deserve for our students. To look at partnerships, this is a specific area of my interest, partnerships with the acute care system uh, to support students, uh, not just in their well-being, but when they become significantly ill and how we actually can't do that alone. And so we are partnering with our neighboring hospitals in that and to really focus on shifting the culture to a culture of caring. So I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you, Judith. Thank you very much, Andrea. And uh, Professor Anne Duffy, if I may invite you. Anne has done, participated in a few of these for us and um, I'm, I'm number one fan of uh, Anne and the work that she's doing and in particular the research she's doing. So Anne, over to you. Thank you, Judith. That's a huge endorsement and uh, it's a pleasure. I, I'm here because uh, I think the work that we're all doing is so important and, and we really thank everyone for coming. Uh, I was going to say this evening because I'm actually at the University of Oxford at the minute. Um, I'm a visiting professor here, uh, but I'm a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Queen's University in Kingston. And I've just taken over as the acting head of a relatively new division of our department um, dedicated to student mental health. And um, that division was really struck uh, because 
there was a recognition where um, student wellness sits on the university campus and we could really um, benefit, I think, from drawing on the academic experience of the university in terms of developing um, resources and care pathways to support students and really understanding what it is that students need and why and how can we help. And so I'm an academic psychiatrist by training um, and uh, I'm just really delighted to have, uh, well, for 20, I guess, 20 to 25 years, I've been studying the onset of mental disorders in young people at uh, familial risk. And then more recently, um, over the last five years since I joined Queen's, um, I focused my work as well on student mental health. And together with students, we've partnered and we've launched a study that I'll be talking a little bit later about, which we've branded You Flourish. And it's really to understand what students need in order to really succeed and flourish whilst at university. So I'm really excited to be here and thank you for the invitation. Thank you, Anne. And before I start some questions that we've already put to the panel, could I invite um, participants to put your questions in the Q&A section of, of your um, screen, not in the chat section. And I'll be uh, visiting the Q&A section from time to time and I will, um, I will bring up the questions. But, and I also want to thank the people uh, from a number of universities who've uh, submitted questions prior to the, uh, to the session today. So thank you for taking time to do that. So, um, Josh, I'm uh, going to throw the ball to you uh, for the first question, and um, I think it's really important that we demonstrate our, our acknowledgement of that what we do in universities is pretty much um, directed towards students, but also to towards uh, continued social good. So, Josh, your question is, for a number of years, those of us working in universities have, adverse, have observed an increase in student stress and anxiety. But it goes without saying that the last 18 months have been incredibly tough. To what extent has the pandemic caused increased anxiety and stress for you and your peers? Yeah, I mean, looking back over the past 18 months, I would say it's about, it's twofold. I think being a student right now, there's a current state amount of anxiety and stress, but there's also a bit of a future state. Looking at the current state, I think, you know, being on Zoom 24-7 really adds a lot of that, those stressors and that anxiety to your day-to-day -day work. Um, so to give you an example, my first uh, semester at Ivy, I had about seven courses at a time, which resulted into about 20 hours of class a week. But that's not even counting the uh, multiple group meetings that I had to be a part of for those classes to get those assignments done. So that ended up being about eight to 10 hours a day on Zoom uh, nonstop. The issue was, you know, it wasn't eight to 10 hours nonstop where you're, you know, in Zoom the entire time. You may have had, you know, a 20 minute gap here or a 10 minute gap there, which really drove up the amount of time that you're sitting by a computer screen. But it also made it hard to actually do the work for those courses, right? So what that ended up happening or what that ended up being was doing all your work on the weekends because you didn't have the time in class. Because after those eight to 10 hours, that Zoom fatigue really sets in and you don't want to do anything else or you don't want to see another screen all night. So, you know, that was a, definitely a big factor of the stress and anxiety added because of the pandemic. And you really were able to see that burnout in a lot of your group members or the people you were talking to in your same classes. You know, at the beginning of the semester, you have that excitement and don't get me wrong, in person or not, nearing the end of the semester, you still see that tail end of exhaustion but I felt like that was a lot quicker during the pandemic than when uh, I was in person and in that kind of class setting. 
But I think the other side of things is the future state of things. So I actually graduated my undergraduate program in May of 2020. So right when the pandemic was starting. Uh, and, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, it was very difficult to get a job. And that's mainly because you got offers rescinded. There was a lot less opportunities in the overall marketplace. And, you know, there was a huge feeling of perceived failure that ended to, tended to set in. You know, because you don't follow that natural progression of graduating university and finding the job in your specific field you wanted to, you know, and I, I felt like that became more daunting as time went on. And when you looked at the market in May 2020, it did feel a bit like a barren wasteland, you know, and the vultures picking it up uh, at those times were actually very highly experienced and highly educated people that also had that same level of desperation sink in at that time, right, which is why they're applying for the same jobs as someone coming out of university at the moment. So, you know, I think as a student, knowing you're competing with those individuals and are applying to jobs with over 2000 applicants, it really became daunting and it started to weigh on you thinking that, you know, is this ever going to end? And now kind of looking at the quote unquote light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully fingers crossed that the pandemic is starting to settle out, that feeling of ambiguity and, you know, not knowing what's going to happen next is really kind of remained for the future of whatever this looks like. So when, when we're done being a student, what does that look like? What will it look like going forward? Will I be in person? Should I move out? Should I go and you know relocate because of, I don't know if I'm gonna be in the office or they're gonna start cutting down all the office space. So not knowing all those things really became that driver of I think stress and anxiety as a student personally. Look, I'm also happy for this to be a bit of a conversation as well. So if members of the panel want to add something or, or delve into some things that uh, other members of the panel have comments that they've made. Let, let's have it as a conversation rather than Q&A. So do any of the members of the panel want to pick up any of the points that Josh has made? Josh, can I just start the discussion then? Um, were, were you given the opportunity to give feedback to your professors and, and let them know that this intensification of work it was having an impact on both student performance and student experience? And if you did, what, what was done with that feedback? Yeah, so I did have that opportunity in my master's program because everything was a brand new format. And so they were all trying to figure out the, the kinks of the actual process. Uh, the issue was though, again, it's the changing circumstances. So when we gave their feedback saying, hey, maybe we should change these things up, uh, we started moving to more of a mixed model as the restrictions started going down. So we couldn't even get used to that state for long enough before we got a new evolution of change. I would say our feedback was taken into account, uh, you know, looking at the new cohorts coming in, they have kind of discussed a, a better kind of improvement in that online experience. But as the students that are still kind of the guinea pig era of what's the online method look like, uh, we didn't really get to reap those benefits, but we were able to kind of see the benefits start being implemented in the future. So if you had the opportunity to stand back now and say, this is what you need to do, what are the three messages you'd give to senior administrators in a university? Yeah, I think limiting the amount of time we would need to be on Zoom would be probably the biggest thing. And I know that's easier said than done. I mean, you have to still teach classes. And I know a lot of professors did start trying different things. But if we can kind of create this synchronous and asynchronous culture that allows us to do the work on our own time, and that way saves us time <laughs> on Zoom, uh, I think that would be a huge driver. That would be one. 
Uh, that way we can do it on our own time and we have enough time to sort our, ourselves out throughout the, the weeks. Uh, I think another big factor would be consistency in the routine. I think there was a lot of changes in, in time because professors had to go to classes. I mean, if this was in person, professors would go from one class to another, right? And therefore there would be a little bit of a buffer time for the students, but here they can just log off of one and go to the other. And that became a little harder because, you know, now I'd have one class ending at 2.05 and the next class starting at 2.10. And that became a little bit of a concern. So I would say, keep into account that we have to sort ourselves out between classes, uh, creating those buffer times. And I guess the final one would be really leveraging that online uh, sphere. You know, some professors did, they really try to make that, all right, we're in a digital space, let's do some more digital first uh, solutions. But if every professor can kind of look back and say, okay, well, now that we're in the digital space, do we have to do this lecture style learning? Or can we start pivoting to more of an interactive based type of learning because we now have more tools and resources that students are familiar with that can now be you know, implemented into our classrooms. When you're in the in-person environment, I mean, it's harder to say, hey guys, we're all in the same room, pull up your computers and do this, right? It, it doesn't make as much sense as much as a discussion does. But in Zoom, when you're doing things like participation and contribution and those kind of things, raising your hand is very different from uh, the contributions in class. I mean, you know, you see the enthusiasm, there's body language as to why someone's raising their hand. So those would be my three main points, I think. Thank you. I, I hope we've got some uh, administrators that uh, can hear that advice. And I'd like to um, address the next question to you. And the last time that we spoke was early 2021, where you mentioned your research focuses on understanding the onset, onset of mental health concerns and disorders with young people, particularly university students. How have things changed in the last year and in what ways is COVID-19 continuing to impact students' mental health? Well, thanks very much for that question, Judith. And I'm really, I thought a picture is worth a thousand words, so to speak. So I just wanted to take a few minutes to um, provide you with an answer to that question. So as mentioned um, in 2018, so prior to the pandemic, we launched research at Queens with support from the Rossi Family Foundation and CIHR. And what we did was we decided to start up a conversation with Queen's students and we worked and partnered with students um, across every single aspect of the project. So in the design and how to actually reach out and engage students to come and have a conversation with us. And this was gonna be a back and forth conversation. So we would capture students' voice as they started university and we would ask them to, to walk with us or take us along with them in their university journey. Um, and this was through an electronic biannual um, student survey. And it was getting at some of the aims of all of the white papers that said, look, we need some really reliable data to capture the student voice, to understand what the need is, what's happening and what might work and for whom. And so that was the brand, the start of the You Flourish uh, student wellbeing research uh, survey. And um, since 2018, you can see here, that was cohort one of first year students coming in. We captured almost 60% of all first year students at Queens in this conversation and have followed them forward through the pandemic. And then in subsequent years, we've also um, engaged students or invited students to come in this conversation with us and to, to bring us along their journey. And so we have data over the course of the pandemic. And so, to answer that question, what's been happening? Well, you can see that what we call screen positive. So these are symptoms now of common mental health concerns. And when we say screen positive, it, positive, it means that students are reporting symptoms at a level 
which we would like to have we would like to assess so that these are potentially clinically significant levels of symptoms and you can see that in 2019 2018 and 2019 um, prior to the start of the pandemic there were significant um, proportion of students who screened positive around a third for depressive symptoms but that even increased further uh, coming into school during the pandemic and the trend is looking like it's trending upwards and in all of these cases females tend to report higher symptom levels than males. So you can see anxiety, uh, levels of anxiety symptoms have also increased for a higher proportion of students and also sleep problems. And um, Josh, this comes to what you were saying too, as students were telling us, we're having a really hard time here because our classes are going all different hours of the day. Our day has expanded. We have much less time um, to balance things and to get involved in hobbies and recreation. And we have very limited time to connect with our peers. Um, and self-harm also increased, as you can see um, over the course of the pandemic in both males and females, as well as suicidal ideation. When we look at these outcomes at the end of the first year, because this is a biannual survey at the beginning and the end of the first year, and we compare the risk of these outcomes in the pre-pandemic cohort of students versus the pandemic cohort, you can see that in every case there was a much higher risk of students screening positive for anxiety, depressive symptoms, and sleep problems, as well as self-harm. Now, students also told us, and maybe I'll leave this to, for, for later, but they also told us about particularly what was bothering them in the pandemic. And um, maybe I'll just stop there. Um, look, thank you for that, Anne. And there's a question here from Stephen McNiven and um, Andrea or uh, Anne can answer this. Um, what strategies can Campus Health Centre use to draw in community-based services to uh, collaborate and coordinate care? Andrea, do you want to make a start with that and then Anne can add to it? Sure. It's a, hi, Stephen. <laughs> it's a great question. Um, you know, we've been grappling with this uh, at the University of Toronto um, because we realize while we're, we're very dedicated to addressing the mental health and well-being and the continuum of mental health to um, illness uh, on our campus, we can't do it alone. Um, and we need partnerships. And we need partnerships with teeth. Um, and um, a lot of the issues we face are really broader than, than the university. They're public health issues, they're community issues. Uh, we, we had an access issue and a service issue prior to the pandemic uh, in terms of mental health access for youth. Uh, we know that uh, from data actually from ISIS and a colleague of mine, Paul Kodiak, that in a 10 year span, there's been a 66% increase of transitional youth, which would mostly be post-secondary students using the emergency department as their first point of access, uh, which is not a very holistic and a warm way to, 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 to meet the mental health system in a first appointment. So we need to develop um, communication, we need to have relationship building, and we need to that uh, with, with community services that, that have meaning and that are quite differentiated. At the moment, um, my focus is particularly with the acute care system. And actually after a series of tragedies, we had a few suicides on campus that spurred the, the, the task force that I mentioned um, and mental health redesign plan. Our Center for Addiction and Mental Health, which is our large tertiary care hospital in Toronto, came to the table and said, we want a partner. And uh, we are partnering. We're going to be starting an acute care navigation project in the new year 
where we will have specific navigators to track students who enter the emergency department or get admitted and develop uh, a coordinated plan of support and case management and redirection back to campus or to other resources. But there are many, many other partnerships that need to exist. There are partnerships uh, we're thinking about uh, supporting students in crisis on campus, for instance, with community agencies to alleviate a police response that is often done uh, when a student is in an acute crisis on a campus. And we know from the pandemic, we know globally that uh, a police response does not suffice to support someone with a mental health concern. Uh, there are partnerships in terms of peer organizations. Um, there are partnerships uh, in, a, in a whole host of, 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 of ways. So I think we have to think about it in a very multifactorial way. Um, there needs to be a clear direction and tracking and, and also to Anne's point around evaluation, when actually, when one embarks on partnerships, you actually have to evaluate um, what's in it, what's in it for the partnering organization, what's in it for the university. Hopefully it's more than one university that's engaging in it. And how successful is it? What tweaks need to happen? Um, how do you evaluate it? How do you improve it? How do you build on it? So, so they're, not, they're not easy to do, but I think very rewarding, very fruitful. And I just, my other mention is students need to be front and center of the partnership. So in, in the partnership, for instance, with CAMH that we're embarking on in the acute care system, it's being co-designed by students for students. So it's not sort of top down, you know, healthcare providers or administrators dictating what this partnership should look like. So that would be another, another key point to, to highlight, but it's a, it's a really, really interesting question. And I, I could jump in, in there, Judith, um, I make, may I or? Yes, please. Great, okay. I was gonna say absolutely, Andrea, and, and I agree. And on the tracking part, I, I think that, you know, my take on various organizations, various universities is that there's a whole lot of initiatives and a whole lot of resources and, and, and services, but they're not necessarily coordinated or rationalized into care pathways. So, you know, we, I think really we need to, first of all, track where are students going and, and understand that. And we're actually partnering, we're funded uh, now by the Mott Gainlison Foundation to do exactly that. So we're, we're actually tracking the student's journey through services to try to figure out where are students going and where are the bottlenecks and where are the gaps? So I think that's a really important piece. And then actually creating care pathways based on best evidence and partnering with students to tell us how to tailor those pathways so that they're engaging for students, but the pathways are actually built on evidence. Um, so I think, and rational, you know? So, so I, I think that that's a really, you know, when do you refer a student here? Where, how do you get the student back? And, and to really kind of, um, not replicate services either and, and to have things that are accessible and moving and, and, and not blocked. Um, and I think the whole partnership with students is an ongoing theme, you know, not for us without us. Um, but on the other hand, I also think that, you know, we have a lot of expertise. And so we need to, as I said, base it on the, base it on the evidence, but partner with students to, in, to make sure that it's relevant and engaging for students. Yeah. Um, Verity, do you want to make a comment too? Thanks. Thank you, Judith. I'd just like to focus on two points, partnerships, in that um, Anne and Andrea talked about, we are all as post-secondary sector looking to establish the same 
uh, pathways and systems to support all our students. So I think it's really important for us to work together, as Andrea said, not just one university, but to coordinate our asks of our government officials, our community agencies, on behalf of our students. In addition, I'd like to just add that we at Dalhousie have had amazing success with our advancement department and donors coming in to fund those types of programs. And so when you, these are, these are compelling projects that are your advancement departments will probably just love when we package them together like Anne talks about using evidence and, and solid uh, rationale to why these things are going to improve our outcomes and our supports for students. So it's about being innovative and about how do we fund these these uh, amazing projects, but also making sure that we make sense when we go to our provincial partners and we make a coordinated ask. Thank you. Now, Verity, I missed that you had your hand up before. Um, do you, in terms of, uh, I think it was something that um, one of the other panelists has said, do you, I'm giving you the opportunity to uh, to revisit that if you if you like. Otherwise, um, I'm going to go to uh, to Josh because he had his hand up. So Verity, oh, it's okay. All right, Josh, you had your hand up. Yeah, I just wanted to say from uh, from Doctor and from the from what you said, I think one of the big things that really stood out to me and I very much resonate with is that engagement aspect. I think you can have as many resources in the world as you'd like, but I think if if no one's engaging with it or educated on the value that it's really bringing to the students, no one's going to use it. And I think we've seen that. I personally have seen that in my both my undergrad and my master's program where there has been a ton of supports and there's been a lot of resources available for students, but when no one feels like it's going to help them or they don't know why they're going to sign up for this on a deeper perspective than just the fact that it'll help. I think that engagement aspect is so fundamental for the actual success of any type of support for mental health and student health. Uh, and, you know, I just found that a very, you know, meaningful piece of the overall puzzle that seems to be forgotten every now and then. And, uh, it really misses the opportunity for students to capitalize on really good resources because they're not engaged with it. Josh, is it that they're not engaged with it or they don't know it's available? And either, either answer gives a different response. So can you just give us a sense of, is it lack of knowledge or fear of actually making the step to, uh, to, to go forward to try to resolve your issue? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough to generalize on, you know, what exactly might be the case for these resources, but I find when it's a lack of knowledge, uh, at least in the circles that I've been around, when it's a lack of knowledge, it tends to spread word of mouth, right? If, you know, if someone has taken that leap of faith to try something new and they found it valuable, they will start spreading it to all their friends. Uh, and then that's when everything starts getting super valuable. But the lack of engagement is hearing a name or hearing something of value. I remember in McMaster, uh, we had this thing called a SWAT program, which essentially was a service that the McMaster Student Union put on to help walk students home from, you know, to have a late night class or whatever. They can get a walk home because, you know, to stay safe. It's a very great resource. And I've heard people complain about not having that resource when they've heard about the SWAT program, but they didn't feel like it would create value to them. And I, I felt like that was the biggest uh, tragedy that could happen to that student because they, they have the things available that they need, but they're not understanding why they should approach it. And so I think that is something that can be fixed. And a lack of knowledge can also be something that can be fixed. 
but it, it kind of works hand in hand, right? You, by having the, you know, it's not just educating, but it's also that engagement aspect that I think if someone does not know about a, a specific resource, you have to do both those parts together uh, versus a step-by-step -step process. Because, I mean, in the Generations Ed era, we have a, you know, a filter of 15 seconds. If it's not interesting in 15 seconds, we no longer care. And that's unfortunate, but that's why these things need to be done in parallel uh, for the students. Uh, Andrea and then Verity. Just building on what Josh is uh, sharing, uh, the engagement piece is key. And I know as uh, having worked in the area, we put a lot of effort into building various resources and they can be underutilized. We've been really working on uh, an open access system using access as the, the key point and multiple forms of access and acknowledging my age. Uh, young people know what they need and they, they, they need multiple ways to access um, supports um, in the way that, that, that feels youth friendly and feels student friendly. So using youth to co-design those access points, virtual, in-person, web, asynchronous, synchronous, and having that sort of point of access when the student needs it right away. Uh, we call it same day access with multiple levels of input. Um, I think is, is key. The other piece as a provider and having worked in the area of youth psychiatry for a number of years, I think we have a lot to learn about. We, we do a lot of things to, to support the, what, what we as providers think people need and we really need to be listening to the consumer and in our world at the consumer is the student. So using, using that, that in kind of en engagement uh, strategy, we call it kind of recovery focused, not worrying too much, you know, I'm trained in CBT and I'm, this is what I'm gonna deliver, hearing what the student needs um, and, 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 and really meeting the student where they're at in terms of um, their willingness to engage. Some may come in for a, a one-off meeting, not really be sure what they want, just help with a little bit of navigation to a support that may not even be in the health and wellness center and that may suffice. Others need more, so not, not one size fits all. Thank you. Verity. Judith, I just wanted to uh, add some information to your great question about students' knowledge of all the supports that are available. Joshua, loved your comments about engagement. Uh, totally support them. I was part of the National Technical Committee for the Mental Health Commission of Canada and CSA that developed the post-secondary student standard for mental health and well-being. It was an amazing project huge amounts of engagement and consultation across the country. One of the top concerns or feedback that we heard from the consultation, including huge student um, engagement, was that they were not aware of the services that were available to support them. And so as we look at creating all of these amazing support systems for students and programs, Joshua, to your point, we need to make sure that our students see the value, understand that they're available, and how do we reach them in a way that's meaningful and provides them with that information when they most need it. Thank you. Um, and there's a question here from Linda Foster. Um, did your research identify any unique challenges of international students and whether mental health challenges have been similar to domestic students or more pronounced? That's a great question and thank you for that. Um, so yes, actually, so we've actually just um, submitted for publication 
um, a preliminary analysis of internet at Queen's international students versus domestic students mental health and academic outcomes. And the short story is that um, the symptom levels of anxiety and depression were very comparable actually between international students at Queen's and domestic students. However, international students more often indicated self-harm and suicidal ideation than did domestic students. And I should say that the actual um, most disadvantaged group in terms of, in terms of self-reported symptoms were actually domestic females. Um, now, the other thing about the international students though, aside from the self-harm and suicidal ideation, which was greater, and I'll come back to that point, the, the international students had struggled more actually academically uh, in their first year. And we had a student focus group to try to capture the student voice of the international students at Queens to try to understand what this might, what might be happening, what might be behind that. And the themes that came up were that, of course, English is a second language, that there were different learning approaches and different learning demands um, from their home schools. Uh, so in other words, um, more uh, interest in synthesis and participation and discussion rather than, um, you know, uh, remote, uh, remote uh, what am I trying to say, rather than memorization and, and, and um, the ways of learning were quite different. Um, and the other thing that the international students mentioned to us was that they felt that mental health literacy in their home countries wasn't as um, prominent and wasn't spoken about in the same way. And that perhaps either students were waiting until they were in quite in crisis um, and that's maybe why self-harm and suicidal ideation was higher. And also maybe in certain cultures, it might be more of an acceptable um, kind of way of coping in a sense than it would be in North America uh, or Canada. And so that was what the students told us. Um, so of course, we're gonna pursue this further, but the implications were that um, whilst symptom levels were uh, similar in terms of anxiety and depressive symptoms, that self-harm and suicidal ideation was um, even more prominent in the international students and that perhaps we as a university could be could do better in terms of um, helping students feel um, more prepared academically for, for the task at hand. The other important um, finding from that study was that international students more often felt less connected, less membership um, with the university. And we know that university connectedness is a major um, protective or a major risk factor um, for poor mental, mental health outcomes. Now, Anonymous has uh, written something here that uh, I'd like anybody in, in the panel to respond to. So great discussion, everybody. This is from Anonymous. Um, with the ever-changing requirements with COVID restrictions, changes are constantly made to teaching. We provide in-depth support to students. However, we are finding some students are taking their frustration out on university team members, which could be admin, registrar's office or faculty. Has anyone visited this so far when the university team members are supported, they can in turn get better support, give better support to students during this, these challenging times. So the question is, students are expressing their frustration in ways that possibly they wouldn't have, but then uh, what's, what's being done by both uh, the university, but what do we need to do to support students? So who'd like to start off that, uh, that observation, that question? Verity. I think that is a, an, an amazing observation to share with this group. So thank you for posting that question. 
And I think that it's important to not acknowledge, and this has just come up in conversations at our university, and it's not just about students, it's about our entire community. And that our, our entire community are tired and fatigued. And so how does that impact how we show up in our daily lives? How does it show up with students? How does it show up with faculty? Uh, Andrea talked about the importance of taking a healthy campus approach. So how are we supporting students? Oh, sorry. And how are we supporting um, a community that is supporting students? Um, and so what we are looking at, and, and universities have healthy campus strategies, they have mental health strategies, they have wellness strategies for workplace. I would make an argument that it is, uh, it is a compelling need for universities to have part of their strategic plans um, and, and, a, and a commitment by the institution to care for the entire community, community with that same intention, because I think that's, that's the only time you're going to get uh, an opportunity to really move the needle on the things that need to get measured, which includes looking at your policies. It includes, Andrea talked about having a, a culture of caring. So how do our policies impact students? And how can we look at those policies to create a better environment? And Joshua, in your early introduction, you talked about just the environment that you were living in and that you were learning in. And how can we create a better environment, not just for students, but for our faculty, for our staff? That includes policies, our community uh, interactions or uh, interventions, supports for the individuals. I think it's, it is a huge opportunity and never more has it been more important. And so I think um, the person who uh, posted this question is really uh, tuning into what our, what our most, one of our most important um, I think priorities will be in the coming year and years are to care for our communities. Um, anybody else want to make a comment on that? So a question that um, is sort of mulling around in my head in terms of our discussion so far is we're in this transitional moment. We're in the moment of teaching online, students learning in, in a virtual environment. The hope that transitioning back into uh, on, into campus learning will will take place, but with each sort of moment of the development of the virus, uh, in, initiatives are taking place to return to campus, and then they're put on hold. So that that sense of um, being resilient to uncertainty is certainly something that everybody's having to manage. Two questions: How do we create a sticky campus for academics and students? Because one of the, the work that I'm doing at the Australian National University um, is suggesting to me that uh, academics are wary about returning to campus. But there are a whole lot of issues that are associated with returning to campus. So that resistance to returning, but how to create a sticky campus. So who'd like to start off responding to that question? I'll, I'll Andrew, jump in. Okay. Um, I think that we need to recalibrate our narrative of returning to normal when the pandemic will be over uh, because uh, you know it it's going to be a while the likelihood is this virus is going to become endemic and we are going to need to adapt and live in a in a in a different state uh, and if we can without wanting to sound too Pollyanna if we can try and really capitalize on the silver linings 
and it's been a real rough haul and now we're on this precipice of the new variant and what will that mean but some of the silver linings are that we do understand that students engage in learning in different ways and we've adapted and there are hybrid formats and there are some advantages to some online forums when i think about mental health care delivery as a psychiatrist you know, we were putzing around for eons saying we needed all these infrastructures to be able to deliver online care. And within the space of two weeks, we just did it. And, and it's never going to go away. And that's something quite wonderful. So if we can, you know, acknowledge the loss, acknowledge that we need to be together as humans, we need to touch each other and hold each other and see each other in person, and we will, but we're never going to revert to the, you know, as it was in 2019. And I think that's that's gonna be the, I love the sticky campus notion um, as you describe it, Judith. So that would be my thinking that we think of, we think of ways to kind of incorporate the learnings um, as we move forward. Verity, do you wanna make a, a comment from where you sit? Um, I would also challenge us all to to really listen to um, to listen to our communities in in ways that uh, take an EDIA um, approach. And so we've learned through our communities that COVID has impacted our student communities, and I'm sure this is true for our staff and faculty in different ways. And so through the, throughout the COVID at Dalhousie, for example, we listened to our students, and I, I mean, this was the comment I was going to make, Judith, uh, when I raised my hand. Joshua talked about, and you asked a great question about, have our, our, do our have your faculty asked you at preference has has the university engaged you in conversation about how is this impacting you and how can we help you and so at dalhousie university we we went into the pandemic in nova scotia march 2020 uh, march 2020 we closed down and ever since then we've been reopening slowly and we started doing assessments with our students every uh, four to six months and what we learned from our students is that their needs changed from the winter of 2020 to the fall of 2020. We also disaggregated our data. So we saw the differences in how our Indigenous students were experiencing the pandemic, how our, the differences in how our Black students were experiencing the pandemic. So we could see how we needed to tailor our supports to meet the different needs of our communities. Uh, we also looked at how the needs of and concerns of our students changed over time from financial management. And this is going back to the social determinants of health and how do we look at well-being at a, on, a, on that level of how do the universities support our students in terms of our financial aid? What does our housing supports and what does our on-campus housing look like in terms of meeting our students' requirements? Uh, so there's all kinds of different ways that our university needed, need, needed to and has risen to the challenge. And Judith, you asked some questions about policy. What happened? Well, at Dalhousie University and I'm sure other universities across the country did the same thing. We looked at our grading policies and we looked at how could we change how we do things to meet where our students, where they were. And of course, Joshua talked about sense of belonging and how do we make sure our students can still connect. 
And that work continues. So one of the things that we've done um, to really to really get to what what how can we best allocate our resources and our priorities is really listening to our community and particularly in my role as Vice Provost Student Affairs, it's listening to our students directly and then making using that information to actually inform decisions and budget decisions by the university. And yeah, thanks a lot. Um, I just wanted to add that I'm learning a lot here in the UK about compassionate campus and, and actually what is it and how do we uh, implement it and how do we measure it. And so we're going to be bringing this back now to Queens and um, it's really part of the, the Mock Gainlison Foundation project that we're doing. Um, and I'll talk a bit more about that. But um, so compassionate campus is super cool. It's uh, at all levels. So it's talking about sort of um, a collective collaborative, a collaborative collective as opposed to an individual competitive environment. And it's about how a way of being and a way of being together, kind of like a switching from a neoliberalism kind of philosophy to, to this collaborative community. And it you, you look at it at all different levels. So it's at the leadership level, at the administration level, at the pedagogy level, so the curriculum level. Um, it's also in the physical environment. So it's in the sort of so socio-ecological um, aspect, you know, sustainability and, and around sort of environmental angst. And, and um, so it's, it's, I think it speaks a lot to, um, and it's timely given the pandemic, speaks a lot to forming an inclusive and um, um, community of shared values. We're all different and we can be from varied backgrounds and, and varied learning uh, programs, but we all need to sort of feel like we're part of a collective community that is uh, really fosters well-being and health. And uh, I think that will really get at a lot of the things that, that have been mentioned um, by Andrea and, and Verity. Josh. Thank you, Anne. Yeah, I just wanted to get your, your opinion on this uh, as a group. Uh, as Dr. Levinson mentioned, you know, this seems to be this idea of a new normal, right? I mean, I look back at airports and I think everyone sees it as a pre and post 9-11, but now we look at life as a pre and post COVID-19, right? So I'm curious on, on your guys' perspective, how much of this is a change management kind of uh, approach as well, right? I mean, Looking at William Bridges, he wrote a book focusing on managing transitions. And he says how change is an external event, but transitions is an internal event. And that's about leaving those endings of a current state in that transition phase and then moving into a new state, into that new beginning. And there's a whole emotional valence around that, right? When you're leaving the endings, you're kind of shocked, angry, in denial. When you're in that neutral zone, you're confused, you're disoriented, kind of frustrated and skeptical of the new kind of beginning. And then in that new beginning, once you finally accepted that change, you're excited, energized, and ready to take on that new approach. So I'm curious, how much of it is it a change in what the, these campuses are doing versus how much of it is getting students used to this new idea of the new workplace or the new environment? Well, Josh, do you want to come and sit in my chair? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, too much response. <laughs> Great question, though. Who wants who wants to respond to to Josh? All right, I'm, here's my opportunity to use my Canadian word. I'm going to volunteer if she could start off with, <laughs> with a response. <laughs> 
I was just going to raise my hand. I think that is a really interesting question. And, uh, and I think it's the, it's, it's the, it's the challenge. And, you know, as an administrator, um, there's all of these things that we do as institutions to move processes along. It is a total other um, body of work to move people through an experience, which is what you're just talking about. And one of the things that that really resonated with me as, as, a, as an administrator through COVID was the challenges for us as a community. And it wasn't about the health because to be honest, the health was the easy part because of we had public health helping us. We put in all of these processes. We moved this work forward. It was managing the human experience through this process, which is so individual. And so when, when we look at managing this, this transition and managing this process with our communities and our people, the importance of being human-centered and never losing sight of the fact that we are nothing without our students and our people. Uh, that's why we all exist. And so, um, but, but understanding that, as I said about disaggregating our data, the importance of understanding that pockets and members of our community are experiencing this transition so differently. And we need to listen to that and respond to that thoughtfully and with compassion. That might not have answered your question directly, but it was my best shot at it, Joshua. <laughs> no, it definitely did. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Anne or uh, anyone else want to make a comment? Look, moving so on many, So, So many thoughts sort of whirring in my mind, and, and I love the way, you know, I agree with all you said very, I love the way you framed it, Josh. Uh, it's really, really interesting. I mean, I think that Again, the, the pandemic has, you know, in, intensified these issues that existed prior, um, but the, it's brought, brought them to the forefront. So, you know, we've had uh, a system, um, a fractured mental health system in Canada prior to the pandemic. It's now, you know, it's brought it sort of central. Um, we, there were in various inequities um, and they are heightened. And so Verity's, um, outlining how this has very differentially affected more marginalized um, members of our society and we need to have even more understanding, compassion, caring um, uh, moving forward. So it's, um, it's, it's not so much getting used to, it's actually keeping our foot in the gas pedal and actually, you know, driving the agenda that the pandemic has, you know, afforded us. Uh, I mean, I, I, again, not trying to be a Pollyanna, there's just so much loss. People have lost loved ones, so many, you know, so many lives. Um, I, I saw one of the questions that was framed was around, you know, sort of what's going to be the future psychological impact of the pandemic? And, you know, none of us really know. Um, there's, there's a real biologic impact just in the, in the disease itself. Uh, people are struggling with neuropsychiatric sequelae, all sorts of long-standing kind of illness moving forward. But I think it, it affords us a real, a real energy and a real, a real moral imperative that we, we tend to sort of move to, to being complacent as human beings and, and we can't be. 
And I would just, I would agree with that, actually. I think it's, it's um, been very stressful, in some cases, tragic. My own mother passed away as a kind of indirect result of this. But on the other hand, I would say it, it, it wouldn't be, would be not for naught if we don't use it as an opportunity. And, and these problems were there before, and, and now they're amplified. So it's a, a chance to really do the right thing, I think. In terms of the questions that people put up, uh, sent in earlier, the themes of burnout and stress for both academics uh, professional staff and students was, was, a, was a common theme. How do we identify when people have um, burnout or are experiencing stress? And what interventions do we need to put in place to, to help obviate and then manage that, that burnout and stress? And while, while you're thinking, um, somebody has asked the name of the book that you mentioned, Josh, by William Bridges. Yeah, the book is called Managing Transitions. I'll put that in the chat as well. Okay. And then, um, Verity, somebody asked the name of the study that you, you mentioned. Um, I'll find it. But who, who the, wants to? Is so, it the, um, the mental health standard? Is that the reference? Yep, I think so. I'll put it in the chat. Yep, okay, thank you. So who, who wants to give a response to the uh, the idea of burnout and stress. And this probably will be the last bit of the discussion because as we know, time flies when you're having fun. I can maybe start a bit and, and um, maybe reverse a bit and then start. And, and that is, I, you know, I think about how can we, how can we help in kind of different ways? So if we think about universal kind of mental health promotion, one of the things that we're doing, and it's with the Mott Gamelison Foundation, is we've developed a digital online comprehensive mental health literacy course tailored for uh, targeting university students understanding the determinants of mental health, well, actually even understanding, well, what do we mean by mental health? What do we mean by well-being? What, how do we define those? And, and looking at it from multiple disciplines, you know, from theology, from humanities, from uh, medicine, from psychology, and what do we know is important in terms of the determinants and how can we, um, as uh, how can students um, help themselves and, and cope with stress and really succeed in whatever way they want to succeed, setting their own goals. And we use um, techniques such as self-reflection and active problem solving and group um, uh, assignments to, to really consolidate that learning. And um, so I think universal mental health literacy can be really effective. And we, we did that in a reverse um, mentorship approach with students again. So in partnership with students to try to capture and engage students in, in the course. Um, other things that we're doing actually, um, both guided and unguided is providing uh, digital resources now that we're in the digital world, um, you know, to give more access and, and to really help students with common problems. So regulating sleep, managing stress, healthy coping strategies, mindfulness. What do we mean by that? You know, the green movement, getting out in nature, the glam movement, so garden libraries and museums, and really, you know, helping students give themselves permission and, and the tools to strike a healthy study life balance and to connect and take time to connect with their friends and peers. And then, of course, um, there's also we're, we're doing another, another um, digitally enhanced care pathway at Queen's Student Wellness, partnering with Queen's Student Wellness um, to try to um, 
be proactive and titrate visits to, to actual clinical need and to engage the students in their own care by giving them a, a digital tool, which is their own EMR, their own stu student health passport that tells them how they're doing it based on their own information, signpost them, and they can actually carry that with them and share their dashboard with whatever provider in whatever place it is that they're getting help. And that will also help us kind of map their journey so we'll be able to understand and track things. So I, I think there's student-focused things, and then I think it comes back to the idea of the compassionate campus, the, the context, the community, that students exist at work and live in, and that we as a university has, have an obligation to, to look at ourselves as well. And how are we doing? How are we supporting our staff or faculty? What, how are we communicating with each other? And, and um, uh, are we actually a healthy collaborative community um, in the way that we're treating one another in our organizations and administrations and our employees? And also how are we communicating and partnering with students in order to help them succeed. Sadly, we've uh, run out of time, um, but Anne, do you have um, resources on your website uh, at Queen's that uh, other people could um, access? Yeah, and I did put that in the chat, so please visit uh, You Flourish uh, at Queen's U. It's, um, it's in the chat there, and we also post our papers, and if you have any questions, please do uh, email me. And thank you, everybody, for participating in what I think has been a, a really wide-ranging and, and illuminative discussion from my point of view. Thank you. Thanks, thank, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you.